0: Well, hello, Uh, welcome to another Facebook Live. Uh, It sounds a little bit echoey because I'm in an empty room. Um, As some of you know, if you've been following these recently, I'm uh, staying with a friend and uh, she's just moved into a house and there's basically very little furniture, very little stuff on the walls. So it's very, um, very stark at the moment. Uh, But I thought I would check in with you. I've just come back from a great weekend uh, in Seattle uh, with some friends out there with Eastlake. And I'm about to go out and see a couple of friends uh, do a comedy show in LA. But I thought before I go and see some comedy, I would talk about something very cheery, uh, namely misery and melancholy. So hopefully some of you will um, You know say hi tell me where you're listening from ask questions uh basically the reason why i wanted to talk about this uh is it's just been something i've been thinking about recently uh freud famously said once that uh he wanted to turn misery into everyday unhappiness so that was his view of psychoanalysis in a way is to take misery and make it into being unhappy now that sounds kind of depressing um, but uh, if you've heard me before you'll know that um, I think it's much more depressing if people promise happiness and certainty and fulfillment and wholeness that causes so much more anxiety and um, fear and doubt uh, and actually there's something very profound in the statement of Freud's taking um, taking misery and making it into everyday unhappiness hey Gabby from Jersey and Jill from Ohio um, so what, what what does he mean? Well, I mean, if any of you, and I'm sure a lot of you, all of you, at some point in your life have probably experienced a type of misery. And one of the problems with that is it's so all-encompassing often that you can't think about anything else. Uh, it takes over everything. And actually part of the healing process is when you can actually have everyday unhappiness and worry about normal things. For a while you don't care about anything, you don't care about your health, you don't care about what you eat, you don't care about your job, you don't care about money, you don't care about what people think of you. All of that just goes. Those are kind of everyday problems. Uh, those are everyday unhappiness things. You know, am I exercising enough? Am I healthy? You know, what do my family think of me? How's my job going? All of that. but. In misery those can all disappear entirely and um, if any of you have experienced this uh, it can be a a relief whenever you start to worry about things that are normal (laughs) it can be a sign of healing not when you're happy but when you start to worry about kind of normal everyday things it can be positive but one of the types of misery that many of us face is a, is a strange one. It's called melancholy. Melancholy can be described as um, getting what you want and realizing it's not what you want. So in in melancholy, you may, you know, when you're 17 or 18 years old, maybe if you have a religious background, you may have felt that you want to get married young, have kids, get a nice house in the suburbs uh you know kind of like have all the furniture that you want in that you know make that your own space and that's that's the object of your desires. that's what you would like nothing wrong with that as such it's just that's what you would like but then you get it uh and you're now 25 26 years old you're sitting there you got what you wanted and you feel depressed you feel trapped. You feel caged, and you have to medicate in certain ways. And this is very common. And if you want to understand why this happens, what one way of thinking about it is uh, is making a distinction between the object of our desire and the object cause of our desire. So these are two different things: the object of desire and the object cause of desire. So the object of desire in this example is the kids, the house, the dog, the furniture, you know, that the ideal kind of life, right? That's the object of desire. But the object cause of your desire might be to, um, uh, you know, the struggle for those things. It might be working hard to get to that place. It might be about uh, pleasing and uh certain people in in your life right that's the object cause of your desire so strictly speaking melancholy is when you get the object of your desire but you lose the object cause of your desire right um or say there's somebody who's an entrepreneur and they're trying to make money and they want to be rich that the money is the object of desire uh but the struggle to get there, the love of the chase, the competition, the back and forth of the, uh, you know, if it's banking or something like that, all that's the object cause of desire. So when the person actually gets their wealth, they feel like they've lost something, but they can't quite put their finger in what they've lost because they've actually got everything they wanted. But what they've lost is, as I say, the object cause of desire. Something that the psychoanalyst Lacan talks about, um, and that's and that, that's a, a technical definition of melancholy. Um, now, what's interesting, I guess, for us um, is if if we experience melancholy, partly what we have to do is get back the object cause of our desire, um, and you know that can be difficult, but. You know it's it maybe we think about well what was it that that made me want these things and the, the difficulty is you've kind of got to have both um you know that you you balance the object cause of desire and the object of desire this plays out in sexuality where maybe the object of your desire is to have sex with somebody you know you desire someone and you want to sleep with them um, but the object cause of desire is that something that makes you desire them, that makes you want to sleep with them, right? So the sex, with as the object of desire, without the object cause of desire, the way they speak, the the, what the clothes they wear, whatever it is that that is the object cause of desire. Uh, if you lose that, then then the sex is of no real interest at all. So you have you have this interesting play between. Between these two things and so in a sense for me one of the challenges to make life rich is for us to live in that space between the object of our desires and the object cause of our desires um, uh, there's other Facebook lives where I've talked about the figure of the rebel in Camus the figure, the figure of the rebel for Camus is someone who enjoys their dissatisfaction so instead of thinking, oh, as soon as I get, say it's a political thing, and you're wanting to, to create a world which is environmentally, you know, sustainable, uh, you're fighting for some justice issue. The problem can be that um, we're dissatisfied when we don't have it. And then if we ever do get the the object of our desire, we can feel like, oh, we can feel happy for a bit, but then we feel like, you know, um, you know we do the celebration seems shallow now the rebel is the one who says yes we fight for change we always move forward but actually we enjoy the struggle the dissatisfaction we we are satisfied in our dissatisfaction we enjoy our everyday unhappiness and the struggles of life and somehow instead of seeing them as some negative thing that we just have to to put up with while we fight for a cause, while we move forward with, with what we believe. Um, actually, that's part of it. That's part of what makes it enjoyable. And the great thing about that is the rebel's the one then who said, there's never an end. There's no utopia where we get to and then we rest and we go, oh, we got the object of our desire. Because if we got the object of our desire, but we lose the struggling and the fighting for it, the, 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 the getting on the streets and doing things, we, we lose that. Then we get the object of desire without the object cause of desire. So the rebel is the one who has both of these. Whereas the and if you go back to my previous Facebook Lives, you'll I think I did one on this where I talk about the revolutionary is the one who fights for a different world, but they're dissatisfied if they don't get that world, and they're dissatisfied if they do. Whereas the conservative is the one who just tries to accept the world as it is. The rebel is like the revolutionary the difference being that the rebel says there's no end there isn't the the utopia is in the eschatological dimension the never-ending movement um, for transformation in your individual life in your family life in your community the enriching um, of your life and your community through the ongoing struggle itself Okay, so there's a few thoughts on melancholy, misery, and everyday unhappiness. Oh, and I will say this, the reason why I like this idea of everyday unhappiness is because this is a bit of unhappiness, because the point is, you don't quite get what you think you want, which would be awful, but you don't let go of it either. You live in the everyday unhappiness of the struggle, but in doing that, you rob that everyday unhappiness of its misery and crazy as it sounds you can actually enjoy it or be um inspired by it or be challenged by it or turn it into fuel for further uh progress and development in your life all right let's see if anyone has anything to say um annie says okay oh sorry i just lost your comment there So how would you define uh oh i don't even know that word weltschmerz well i mean that's probably german and i don't speak german so (laughs) forgive my pronunciation is that also a type of melancholy based in your definition or is that more the existential pain of being human weltsch oh i can't even say Annie. i'm so sorry but you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna look that up after this i'll look that up while i'm at the show later on um Let's see what else. Daniel says, I think one of the best explanations of what you're talking about is how Camus describes the myth of Sisyphus, condemned to do the same thing and never achieve it. But the goal is to, as he puts it, uh, and then, oh, and then, sorry, the rest of your comment cuts off. But yes, Camus, I think, is very good in this. I've been rereading Camus recently and uh, I've been really enjoying it. So Camus imagines this uh you know it's a it's a myth where sisyphus is condemned by the gods to push a, a rock up this mountain and it rolls back down and he gives himself to the task um, and we imagine sisyphus happy in that he gives himself to this task so there's elements of that yeah i think camus and freud can be productively brought together in fact there's a good book that does that by adam phillips called in oh what's it called in praise of the unlived life something like that i don't that might not be quite in praise of the i think that's a subtitle um in praise of the unlived life but if you type in adam phillips you'll find it and he he kind of plays with Camus and freud in a a really interesting way (laughs) jim's asking how much for the chair this is a good chair actually I like it a lot. I um I almost had there's a dog downstairs, there's a little dog, I love dogs and uh, it's a white dog and I'm in my uh, black pool neck and so on this crazy chair. So I was going to have the dog and then I would look like a kind of really crappy bad guy from a want to be James Bond movie. Um, okay, let's see. Uh uh, oh, um, Shauna asks, what book would you recommend as a first engagement with Lacan? <sighs> yeah, that's good. I, I'm one of my favourite Lacanians. Well, there's obviously Slavoj Oshizek, who I really enjoy and um, challenged by, but my, one of my favourites is Bruce Fink. Uh, Bruce Fink is a fantastic Lacanian analyst and has written lots of books on Lacan that I think are very readable. Um, I mean, they're still you still have to work you know but they're they're readable he just wrote a beautiful book on love um looking at Lacan and love and he wrote two volumes of they're basically um uh, essays and papers that's very good called against understanding i think that's brilliant she's ex book how to read Lacan is a great place to start as well Uh, but yeah i would pick up pretty much anything by Bruce Fink um, uh, I, th- I just think he's a work, like he translated so, um, most, I think he translated all of the Cree, um, into English and, um, a lot of the seminars as well. So he's like a, one of the kind of leading, um, Licanians in the English speaking world. Yeah. Uh, John says, what would you say to someone striving for success, but hoping to not lose their soul in the process? um yeah, and I, that reminds me of kind of the death drive. The death drive is where you so get caught up in the pursuit um, that you destroy yourself. You know you destroy your soul, but you destroy your body, you give yourself a heart attack, you do that, which I, I think is very connected to striving for perfection. There's so, something unconsciously in you is striving for this thing that will fill you. That's what the rebel is the one who realizes there's nothing that will do that. And so they break the power of that obsessive striving. Um, I I don't know if there's something in this, but um, the perverse structure in psychoanalysis can be seen as the one where the person is so obsessed with the object cause of desire that the object of desire begins to disappear. So somebody, you know, you you want to sleep with somebody, but actually, no, you're obsessed with the little detail, the fetish, basically fetishism. You're obsessed with the object cause of desire and the object of desire vanishes away. So in in a way, I suppose the person who's, you know, a business person who is like striving, 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 but not actually caring about the object of desire at all is kind of a perverse structure where you're obsessed with the object cause and not the object. Um, I'm just thinking of that off the top of my head, so uh, that could be all wrong. Um, but because the other thing I'm thinking about is what I explore in my book, The Idolatry of God, where um, I look at how this striving can simply be an attempt by us to find wholeness and completeness um, and uh, ultimately be destructive. But that's, that's an obsession with the object, that's it. So I suppose you could think of like, is this, let's imagine a businessman. Is this businessman um, wanting to get rich? And so he's striving to get rich. Well, he, he has got this object and he's like, ah, oh, he's going, going, going for it. Or is this business person just obsessed with the struggle itself, and doesn't care about the money at all? Um, can, kind of like almost like a miser or something, you know, doesn't use the money, doesn't do anything with the money. He's just obsessed with the object cause of desire. Um, and that causes all kind of problems so um yeah yeah uh, there's this interesting space of accepting the in-between um and by the way I'm, you know that like um i think if we're striving for money it's not really a very good object to be striving for you know i, I more want to ap- apply this stuff to the realm of like uh, politics um Uh, I think it's much more interesting there to think about what it means to be a political activist um, using this kind of framework. Okay, let's see, maybe one more. Uh, Andrew says, what if the melancholy is calling out the illegitimacy of your desire? Um, the, The illegitimacy of your desire, melancholy, um... I don't know. Because c- of the way I define melancholy, which is you get the object of your desire. And it's not me. I think that's the Freudian way of thinking about it. You get the object of your desire, but you lose the object cause of your desire. Um, uh, yeah, well, then in that sense, yeah, Andrew, you're right. Um, it, melancholy kind of does expose the problem with getting what we want. It exposes the illegitimacy of that entire approach. Yeah, no, I I, 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 think I'm tracking with you. That's very much what I argue. That's why, you know, I, I in many of my talks um, and in many of my books, I've talked about the horror of getting what you want. That and the, but the reason, but it's good. It's the, um, it's the moment when you're confronted by the impotence of your desire, and then that can actually lead you to have a better form of desire if you, if you work through it. So yeah, melancholia, melancholy, um, if if you embrace it if you start to look at it if you let it guide you if you ask why why it's there it can be your guide absolutely the problem is if we don't do that you know we just stay in melancholy but if we do look at that um uh yes it 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 exposes something problematic um yeah okay listen Thank you very much. People have been tuning in there. Um, I usually do these in the morning. I don't know whether it's it's I get more people at night or less people at night, but um, keep tuning in. I've got a few more Facebook lives I want to do in the next few days, and um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do that. Um, but in the meantime, wherever you are in the world, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're not in misery. I hope you're not in melancholia. We're all there at times. I've been there you know, so that's, that may be there again, um, so hope, you know, take care of yourselves, thanks for checking in, and I'll, uh, I'll talk to you again soon.